I listened to uh, John's prayer as he led us to the throne of grace this morning, and uh, it was uh, very edifying, and I'm reminded of how important it is that we come to the throne of grace right. Mm. And, uh, well, I think that sets the stage for what we need to look at this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. As you're turning, I would like to pose a question to you, and that is, what does it take to be right with someone? Well, it all depends who you're talking about. A student needs to be a good student if he's going to be right with his teacher, which usually means he pays attention in class, he participates in class, he turns his assignments in on time, and he does the best he can. For a citizen to be in good standing with the law, he would, of course, need to be lawful, which means not breaking the laws of the land. The guy who wants to be in good standing with a girl that he happens to like has to win her affection by uh, proving that he's worthy of it and so shows himself to be honest, caring, gentle, and likes to go shopping. (laughs) Any kind of relationship, any kind at all that you can think of that exists between two parties where one of the parties in particular is interested in how to relate to the other one There is always something that the one must do in order to be right with the other. And the same is true in one's relationship with God. Although this relationship is the most unique one there is, for God is holy, he's perfect, demands the same from the one who wishes to fellowship with him. And that's not only a tall order, but it's actually quite impossible. Who is perfect and holy as God is? Well, no one. So how can one be right or in a right standing with a perfect holy being? How does one enjoy an intimate communion with an all-consuming fire without being burned? The question how a person can be right with God, well, is an age-old question. It's the one that Job asked centuries ago. And if we are all born again, Uh, sinners, as the Bible makes clear, then we are doomed to fail uh, in our attempt to be perfect. That is to say, if we're sinners and not born again, we're doomed to fail at being perfect and have a right standing with God right out of the gate. And you can see why, then, it is such an important question to answer. It's the question of the centuries, and for centuries people have been getting it wrong. How do I have a right standing with God? Well, the answer is really a simple one, but it's not a popular one. How can I be right with God? How can I stand before him and be sure that he will accept me and he won't condemn me? Can I do it on my own? Do I have the ability within myself to merit God's favor? Well, let's turn our attention to our text and answer these questions, which really amount to one And that is, how am I right before God? We're in verses 15 to 21. As we come to that passage, there is no clear indication that the apostle is talking to, uh, still talking to Peter, although what he explains now to the Gentiles here, he may very well have said to Peter in some form or fashion. In all likelihood, Paul begins a new section starting at verse 15 while he moves from this or from his rebuking Peter, really to a general exposition 
of the principle, which is the matter at stake. And it's at this point, I think Paul says, in essence, so I confronted Peter because of his hypocrisy that put the gospel of grace in danger. And the reason I did that is because there is a a precious biblical truth that was and still is now at stake. And that is this, that a person is justified only through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's really the main idea of verses 15 to 21, if we boil it down to its essence. A person is justified only through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage, I want to warn you, is very dense. That is, it's hard to understand because of its complexity of theological ideas. Paul here introduces, for the first time, justification, law, works of the law, and that faith is the indispensable channel of salvation, right here in just this passage. He will go on, in fact, to explain all of those aspects in greater detail in chapters 3 and 4. And we will, too, when we deal with those chapters. But since we encounter these terms for the first time in Galatians, I, I think it's important that we at least define them. And that's necessary. After all, you have to know, at the very least, what Paul means if you're going to walk away with some kind of worthwhile application. You could be sure that the Galatians knew what Paul was talking about at this point. They had a basic understanding of these concepts, and we must as well. In addition to that, I also want to say that in my effort to communicate this material to you in a way that you will hopefully grasp, I need to point out that Paul introduces these concepts in a very interesting manner. It it is in a context where he's actually countering the Judaizers' attacks on the message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We've already seen how Paul does that. He does something similar in chapter 1, if you remember. He spends time defending his gospel and his apostleship against the lies that he had received those from men, most likely the apostles, just like his Judaizing uh, accusers did. And that they sent him out to preach the gospel of law, by the way, to the Jews. And that Paul was guilty of taking that message, that gospel of law, and tweaking it when he spoke to the Gentiles, leaving out the law a bit. Well, Paul dismantles that accusation, and at the same time, he defends his gospel and his apostleship. So he does the exact same thing here in verses 15 to 21. He makes it clear by the way he constructs this small and condensed passage that he is once again countering the Judaizers' false gospel of law. What were they saying exactly? Well, they were advancing at least three dangerous arguments. And we have time only for one this morning. So their first argument is really a false premise that leads to a rather unchristian way of living, and it goes like this. Ethnic Jews are born into a special category of people that puts them in a higher status before God than anyone else, so that Jews are not sinners while Gentiles are. 
And that's, that's the first teaching or the first dangerous issue or matter that the Judaizers were putting forth. And you might be wondering, how could they actually get away with such an outlandish and arrogant position? Well, here's the answer. God called us, speaking from their point of view, God called us as his chosen people. He gave us his covenants. He gave us his law. It would be our wisdom among the nations. God equipped us to live holy lives before him. We are the nation of priests. It's from us that Messiah would come. We therefore are in a category all our own and enjoy a special status before God. Well, that just makes sense. From this dangerous premise comes two implications that can only lead to a very unchristian way of living. Two implications. One is this, that if Jewish Christians abandon the law as a means of justification and rather put their faith in Christ alone, well, they would sink to the status of Gentiles and be just as sinful as they are. Can you see their thinking here? Gentiles must be sinners because they didn't live principled lives based on God's law. They never had it. As a result, and according to this elitist mentality, they are inferior to Jews. So to ask a Jew to abandon faith in the law, which is what saves and keeps him saved, he would effectively become no better than the Gentiles. He would be guilty of a lawless lifestyle. The second implication is just as bad. That is, to create equality between Jew and Gentile, the Gentiles need to rise to the special status of the Jew by becoming a Jew. That's the second implication. If Jewish Christians are to be welcomed, or are to welcome rather Gentiles into the fold and treat them as equal, Well, then Gentiles need to become Jews and start trusting in the law in addition to Christ for their salvation. Now, in order to show that these implications are incorrect and dangerous, Paul refutes the premise. He goes right to the premise. He says, your premise is wrong. And he counters it in verses 15 and 16 with the truth that he stated positively And he also states negatively. Positively, the truth is this, that every person without exception is justified by faith in Christ alone. The same truth stated negatively is that no flesh will be justified by works of the law. So let's take a look. Verses 15 and 16, he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Nevertheless, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, Paul describes this elitist position that existed between Jews and and Gentiles. Before he and Peter and Barnabas were Christians, they were all nothing more than ethnic Jews. That's what they were. 
And they thought of themselves as superior to the Gentiles because, as I say, they were God's chosen race with God's covenants and laws. And the rest of the world, comprised of Gentiles, was without God's, God's law, and they were godless. They had no covenant relationship with God, so they were hopeless. They lived without God's law, and they were lawless, or sinners, as the Jews were so fond of saying. So to ethnic Jews, Gentiles were godless, hopeless, lawless sinners. And Paul reveals the Jewish elitist mentality toward the rest of the world by putting we at the beginning of the sentence. You'll notice in your English translation, it's at the beginning of the sentence, we. Now, Greek ordinarily begins its sentences with a verb, unlike English, unless you're writing poetry. So when Greek wants to emphasize the subject, it puts the subject at the beginning of the sentence. And in doing so, Paul shows here the racist attitude of the Jews. There is us and there is them. Now, while it's true that God chose the Hebrew nation to be his own possession, to demonstrate to the world what, what life with him at the center looked like, they were to be holy, God did not choose them because they were special. All right? And this answers the first implication that Jews were in a right standing before God already, and they would not want to jeopardize that status by turning from faith in, in the law to faith in Christ alone and become sinners like the Gentiles. They, needed, they hadn't realized that they were sinners to begin with. Let's understand that God didn't set his electing love on Israel because they were better than any other nation. He didn't give them his written word because they deserved to have it or make a covenant with them because they were morally and ethically superior to the rest of the world. In fact, those whom God has chosen, who God chose in prehistoric times, were not even Jews, right? What, what nationality was Adam or Seth or Methuselah or Noah? And when the time came for God to create Israel, he simply took a pagan from the land of Ur named Abram to be the father of this new, this new nation. Beloved Christians are God's chosen people, but they should never think that they are deserving of eternal life, ever. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as we heard read this morning, and the wages of sin is death. What we all deserve is condemnation, and God would be perfectly just to condemn everyone had he chosen to do so. Now, the truth be told, Israel failed miserably to be a testimony for God before the world. We know that. This is one of the accomplishments of Messiah. He did what Israel failed to do. In addition to this, I also say that of the generations of Hebrews in the Old Testament since Abraham that grew up with the law, few kept it. Now, what good is the law to the Hebrews if they disobey it? And would they not become all the more guilty before God for not obeying it? Or as was the case with the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who simply saw the law as perfunctory and, well, went through the motions, but their heart was far from him? It's one thing 
to, den- to deny or to live in ignorance of God, but it's quite another to know better and live in ignorance to God. Oh, and by the way, they were uh, considered the, uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' day who saw the law as perfunctory and went through the motions. They were considered the best that Judaism could produce. Did you know that? They were the best. And still Jesus says to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. A lot of good the law did for them, right? Now, Paul detail, Paul's detailed answer to this is in verse 16. But before we, before we can grasp it, we need to define some of Paul's terminology. As I say, there's terminology here that comes for the very first time in the letter of Galatians. So the first one is justified. It is the word justified. There is a wide range of meaning to this word in the New Testament, but in the context of Galatians, it simply refers to the state of being right with God. That's it. The state of being right with God. When it comes to being in a right standing with God, God demands perfection. Moral perfection is required of everyone who wants to have an intimate and eternal relationship with God. And since that's impossible for us, enter Christ into history. He comes in the form of a man whom we know as Jesus, and he fulfills the requirements of the law perfectly, both on the level of behavior and thought, As a sinless man, he alone was qualified then to take our place on the cross and pay our debt to make us right with God. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father poured out his full wrath on Christ in order to satisfy his own justice. You see, if God would, would save a sinful people for himself, someone had to pay for their sins. Jesus meets God's judicial demands of, uh, of payment on their behalf. And as a result, God is free now to show mercy on whom he will show mercy through the work of Christ alone. He saves, he justifies them on the basis of their faith in Christ. Now, I want to say forensically speaking, Forensically speaking, God, who is the justifier of souls, legally pardons the condemned sinner who stands in Christ's righteousness and declares that saint just in his sight. And don't misunderstand what we're saying here. God never makes a person righteous. Now, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine. It's called infusion, as if people could actually become righteous in and of themselves. That's not a a Bible doctrine. God does not infuse you with your own righteousness. Rather, God imputes Christ's righteousness to you just as he imputed your sin to Christ when he was on the cross. So that's justified. It means to be in a right standing before God. I can stand before him without the fear of condemnation. The next one is law. 
the term law. Law in the Bible can refer to the entire Bible, or actually the entire Old Testament, or it could refer to the law of Moses as a religious system, or even more specifically to just the Ten Commandments. In the context of Galatians, Paul is using it here to refer to the Mosaic law as a religious system. Now, God gave the law in the context of the Old Covenant, and that was a covenant which he made with listen very carefully, believing Jews, genuinely saved Jews. The law operated then to govern the attitude and actions of believers so that God could dwell in their midst. That's what the book of of Leviticus is all about. Some see three areas to God's law. You've got the civic, the ceremonial, and the moral. the moral being the Ten Commandments, of course. So God never meant his law, especially the moral aspect of it, to be a means of salvation. Rather, it was a means of sanctification for those who were already believers. It outlined what holiness looked like for God's people. Moses and David and Solomon and all those who followed them in the godly line throughout the rest of Israel's history until the Incarnation saw God's law operating this way. Now, by the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the nation of Israel was in trouble. It was a divided nation, and it really had become apostate with only a small remnant of true believers that God had to make. As a a result, God had to make a new covenant that would promise to save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. And Jeremiah 31 distinguishes the new from the old in that God's promise in the new covenant is this, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. The promise of salvation is even more pronounced in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. Wow. The new covenant, which which is designed to bring salvation. You see, God had to make a new covenant with this specific purpose because Israel was so lost and the old covenant couldn't help them. It was never designed to save the lost. In fact, it would only condemn them now by showing just how far short they they had come from God's holy standard. Paul will talk about that in more detail in chapter 3, and so will we when we get there. But somewhere along the way, the Jews mistook the law as a means of justifying their standing before God. And so this is what we understand Paul to mean when he talks about law in Galatians. The next 
phrase, a technical phrase, is works of the law. Works of the law. This refers to obeying the law, applying it to one's life. A believing Israelite would apply the civic part of the law as it was laid out in Leviticus for holy living in his interpersonal relationships with fellow Jews, making restitution when that was necessary, loving his neighbor as himself. The same would be true with the ceremonial aspect of the law. He would be sure to observe the dietary stipulations, abstain from touching dead bodies, intermarrying with pagan neighbors, bringing correct sacrifices, assembling at temple, and so on. And as to the moral aspect of the law, believing Jews delighted in it, and they delighted to live in conformity with it. Listen to the psalmists. Just in Psalm 119 alone, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day, verse 97. I shall delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word, verse 16. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life, verses 92 to 94. All in Psalm 119. That is a believer speaking. Keep in mind, beloved, only the believing remnant of Israel could keep these stipulations of the Old Covenant for sanctification and would make the appropriate sin offerings whenever they broke it. The same was not true of unbelieving Israel. Oh, sure, they lived alongside believing Jews, thinking themselves to be right with God, but they weren't. And their keeping of the law was nothing more than a token gesture of going through the motions without faith. They were apostate. God's law, in this case, could only condemn them. Now, at some point, unrighteous Israel wrongly understood, as I say, the law as a means of being justified before God. That was a view that persisted from generation to generation by uh, by the rabbinic teaching of the Pharisees. which was a new religious order in in Israel shortly after the exile. And this view influenced the Judaizers. They mixed Judaism and Christianity, believing on the one hand that one must believe in Messiah, yes, but on the other hand, continue to keep the requirements of the law. They hadn't realized that both the Old Covenant and the law were only temporary and pointed to their fulfillment in Christ. The final phrase that we need to be aware of in this passage is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the technical phrase. And it's the most important one in Paul's argument. Paul explains that God does not declare anyone just by keeping the Mosaic law. Rather, he declares someone just through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says with respect to ethnic Jews of the Old Covenant and, and those who grew up with the Mosaic Law that even we needed to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. His last word in verse 16 is very absolute. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. I think a great example of this is Paul himself. 
If anyone could claim to be justified by works of the law, it would have been him. But he tells us in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 6, put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Had you asked Paul before his conversion how one is justified before God, he would have said, by works of the law. But after his conversion... The answer is very different. He says, by faith in Christ alone. Which, by the way, was true even for Adam. Now, beloved, we have much more to unfold in this short and very condensed passage. But let me draw for you one important application that comes just from verses 15 and 16. It's in keeping with the main idea a person is justified only through faith in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, is the answer to our question that we pose at the beginning of our time. How is one just or right before God? Now, this is why it's so important that we preserve the truth of the gospel of grace and the means of salvation by faith in Christ alone. So let's talk about salvation for a moment. I want to talk about salvation, and then I want to talk about sanctification. Both of these are applications of what we just talked about. There are two components to this phrase, through faith in Christ. And we need to get it right in our minds. One is faith, and the other is Jesus Christ. Both have been and continue to be redefined and misunderstood today. For example, many define faith as a confidence or a trust in someone or something, which you might think sounds good, But the problem is what they mean by confidence or trust. And what they mean is that it is not based in fact. And that makes all the difference. In this case, secular faith is no different really than chance. One banks his life on the object of his trust, taking a chance that he's right, that the object in which he trusts will, will come through, hoping against all hope. This is why people call this faith a leap, right? A leap of faith says it all. I'm going to trust in this, and I, I really hope that I'm right. I'm hope that, I hope that it's going to work. Well, I guess only time will tell. Can you imagine approaching your eternal destiny with this kind of faith? It's little more than a wish, as I say, a chance. <clears throat> but biblical faith is very different. It, too, is the exercise of trust, in, a, in an object, but trust in this context is grounded in historical fact, reason, and is a guarantee, really. There's no leap, no chance, no doubt. Faith that the Bible calls, calls for rests really on hard evidence. There was Jesus. He rose from the dead. 500 people saw him. The tomb was empty. And so we sing, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded 
that he is able to keep that which I have committed until that day. Biblical faith is also much more than agreeing intellectually with a concept. You can believe that Jesus rose from the dead and still not have saving faith, still not be right with God. After all, the devil believes this. No saving faith ever stops with an intellectual understanding. It involves the entire person. What else is there? Well, there are his emotions and also the will. We have the intellect, the emotions, and and the will. With regard to the gospel, you first must understand it intellectually. You've got to know what it's saying. You understand it. You say, yep, I get it. Then you would experience the emotional side effects of this truth, which would be a godly sorrow. Even a a feeling of desperation at the thought that you were at odds with a holy God and stand condemned, even now because of your sin. And finally, there is the exercise of your will to do something about it, which is to put your trust in Christ's saving work on your behalf. The intellect, the emotions, and the will, all working together to bring about a solid act of faith in Christ. And that's what we mean by saving faith. Okay, I understand faith well enough and how it could be misunderstood and redefined into something that it's not, but but what's what's there to get wrong about Jesus? Oh, plenty. People redefine him as well, making him out to be someone far different from what he claims to be. The Jews certainly misunderstood Jesus, right? No question about that. Some rejected him altogether, And others who actually believed in him wanted to make them their kind of Messiah. Both were wrong. Today people define Jesus in a way that allows them to live with him. They see Jesus as all loving but no wrath. All forgiving but no condemning. They tailor a Jesus for themselves, picking those attributes that that appeal to them and discarding those that offend them. People tend to understand how God acts and and what he wants by how they act and what they want. Just remember, God created man in his image, and so fallen man creates God in his. And doctrinally, we Christians often do the same. But Jesus, who bid little children to come to him and sit on his lap is the same one who spoke parables to prevent certain people from understanding the words of eternal life and being saved. The Jesus who pronounced blessing on the meek is the same who pronounced woes on hypocritical religious leaders. He went out of his way to see a woman at a well to give her living water and to avoid the crowds in Jerusalem who wanted to set him up as their king. Jesus was very clear about the kind of Lord that he was. He demands no less than 100% loyalty from all his followers, expecting them to be prepared to follow him to the death, to lose their lives for his sake, to seek his kingdom rather than the, the momentary pleasures of this world they want. And those who are not prepared to follow him to this degree are not worthy of him. Don't even bother. Faith in Jesus means that we trust him 
as the object of our complete trust and surrender and affections. Now let me say a word about sanctification. Just as our sanctification is by God's grace, our our justification is by God's grace, so is our sanctification. We are saved by God's grace and we live by grace. And while Christians are right with God positionally, they can never be severed from their relationship with him. They can grieve him. They do fall out of fellowship with God and be so at odds with him that they even jeopardize their prayer life, so says 1 Peter 3, 7. They need to walk in fellowship with the Lord, and the Bible tells us how to do that. Very simply, the Bible's method for keeping in fellowship with God in a, in, in a, in a harmonious and, and intimate union with him as believers is confession, repentance, and training in righteousness. We confess our sins, we turn from them, and we train ourselves never to sin the same sin over again. And so we grow in our relationship with Christ. That is the essence of sanctification. But so often is the case with those who are not students of the Bible that they will mistakenly incorporate something from either their past religious system that they were saved out of or maybe rest on an amalgam of tradition, philosophy, human wisdom, and personal intuition or gut feelings in order to stay right with God. Rather than confess a sin, they might try and go and atone for it in their own way by doing more good works and that kind of thing. They can develop, if, they, if they've not carried over from their unsaved religious lives, a works mentality into their sanctification as well. They assume, for example, that, that they must do certain works in order to become holier not realizing that believers already have the holiness of Christ imputed to them. Or they may become legalistic and develop a punch list of rituals that they need to perform in order to secure God's blessing. Well, let's see, I have, I have to pray so many times a day, I have to witness to so many people in a week and avoid rock and roll music and wear only certain clothing, and then I've reached a new status of spirituality and I could be sure to receive God's blessing. That may sound silly to you, but let me tell you, it's, it's very much a part of people's thinking in the church today. That's what we call a legalistic style. Some will go in the absolute opposite extreme, <clears throat> and, and it's just as dangerous, where grace is so exaggerated by some that they actually ignore the very commands of Scripture. Well, I've been saved by grace. What more do I need? I'm promised heaven. What else is there for me to do? I can just live my life the way I want and not be concerned with commands and principles. We call this an antinomian or libertine mentality. Paul will deal with it later in this very passage, in fact. And there's no question that we are saved by God's grace alone, yes. His plan, however, his plan of salvation which is a stroke of grace itself, 
is about how God has saved us unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. And to enjoy the grace of God in this new life means that we delight as well in his law. Isn't that ironic? While the law is not a means of salvation, it is, as we argued, a part of our sanctification. It should be our delight. We love God's law, for it is that very law that that he has written in our hearts of flesh, right? We need to stay so close to the text. We need to get it right, and we will, by God's grace. Father, we thank you for this time we've had to look ever so briefly at just the beginning of this passage, one that proves to be so rich in doctrine. We pray that as we make our way methodically and systematically through it, taking a bit at a time, that you would cement the meanings in our minds, in our brains, that we would become stronger in our walk, closer in our walk with you, because we understand your word and we apply your word to our very souls. We pray, O God, that you would give us a greater understanding then of your truth, especially in these last days where it is being tampered with and polluted and contaminated. We pray that we would be able to wipe off the dirt and see your truth shining brightly that we might rest upon it for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.